I remember it clearly. It happened probably 20 or 21 years ago. I was in my office there at the church, and a gentleman came by to see me. He introduced himself, and at the time, I, I honestly didn't know who he was. He was a member at that congregation, um, and I learned a little bit about his story. Turned out Virgil Vining was a World War II veteran. Now, as many veterans, they don't brag and boast about their story. Um, but he had, as in later years, decided to write about it, to tell the story of being a, a, a Japanese World War II prisoner. It's a fascinating story. We talked a little bit about how he had come to Christianity, how he'd come to Christ, a little bit about his his story from then until now, and he handed me this book, Guest of an Emperor by Virgil Vining. And I kind of thumbed through it like this, and I said, well, thank you, Virgil, I appreciate that. I will definitely read that. And I took the book, and I put it on my stack of books, and never got around to reading it. And it traveled with me from Phoenix back to Wichita, sat on my shelf there in my library, never got around to reading it. And about 10 years ago, I was in the library and I was looking through some books and I pulled out this book, picture of an eagle in a cage. There's surely got to be a fascinating story here. And so I just started reading it and I kept reading it. And I kept reading it. It was one of those books that just drew you in, and I could not put it down. And for the next two days, that's all I was doing. Remember, Christy or the kids would find me. I was with this book, reading the story of Virgil Vining. And I came to page 286. And as I was reading it, I actually exclaimed, oh, here's what I read. During our long and monotonous journey from the islands, Father Riley had been our constant entertainer and counselor. He now jumped up in the center of the crazed, screaming mob and He shouted his prayer at the top of his lungs, and even at the end of the hole, I could plainly hear him as he held his beads and he continued on, and other portions of the hold, other officers and men with strong voices capable of being heard above the din of the din commanded the men to silence. Now, he's give you a little context here. They're in a ship. They've been just basically put in there like sardines. Uh, They are, I believe, as in in a a terribly... uh, violent storm, and they and they're, think they're going to drown, think they're going to... And so these, these men that have been taken prisoner of war believe that this, they're, they're their last moments on earth. And it's a very intense scene. About that time, Judge, he has in quotes there, Judge Levering, the man from Ohio who had volunteered his services to the U.S. Army on Bataan, and survived the infamous Bataan Death March, stood amid fellow prisoners, and in his fine, cultured, mellow voice, started reciting some poems 
The judge made several excellent recitals during our long sea voyage from Manila. We all enjoyed his entertainment immensely. He seemed to possess the knack of holding an audience whenever he had the floor. It was just thrown in there. To my recollection, Virgil never said anything about Judge Levering, the man who captivated his attention in the midst of a sea vessel that many thought would capsize. And I had so many questions about that man. Because I I know that some of our family, some of the Levering family, my dad's side uh, came from Ohio. My dad did a lot of, or grandfather did a lot of ancestry genealogy work. And I have much of it in my garage. But I have so many unanswered questions. And the moment I read that, I I got on Google and searched up Virgil Vining. Because I thought, maybe, just maybe I could possibly still reach out and have a conversation with Virgil Vining about the man who brought calm to a, a boat full of prisoners. No, Virgil Vining had passed away a few years before. I never got to finish that conversation. And I, oh, that I wish I had not left this book on my shelf. Perhaps he knew that day when he came to my office of a young 20-year-old youth minister. Perhaps he knew the connection. And he just wanted to see if I would make it. I, I don't know if Virgil knew if he had me in mind when he handed me the book. There are so many questions left unanswered. But you see, what I did by failing to read the book was I missed an opportunity to connect with the author. As we think about this series that we are in on Sunday mornings called Unshakable, we are thinking about these Immovable, steadfast, unyielding, unrelenting things, parts of our spiritual lives that do not move, that do not change. And this morning, we're talking about a different kind of book by a much more perfect author. May we not miss the opportunity to consider how wonderful a blessing this book is. Guest of an Emperor caused me to exclaim on my couch and hope that I could find the author. This book has changed my life and my eternity. And I'm not getting into bibliolatry here. We don't worship the book. What makes this book special is not the pages, is not the... The binding is, is not the cover, is not the many forms that it comes in. What makes this book special is the author. And the fact that he wrote it, that he inspired it, it's God-breathed, and that it has the power to change your life as well. And not just life here in this world, but life in the world to come. So this morning I want to give you four things to think about when we consider this book. 
And may we not miss out on the opportunity to read this book and let it sink into our hearts and it might change our lives and our eternities. So open the Bible and turn to Psalm 119. Now, if you're following along, you know that one of your shepherds, Craig, already read from Psalm 119, which would be an appropriate thing to do in a message talking about the focus being on the Word. Because Psalm 119 is all about the beauty and the power and the efficacy of God's holy word. Now, it's a long chapter. We're not going to read the entirety of it. But I would encourage you to do so. Because it, it's, it's truth upon truth about the power of God's word. But in verse 105, the verse is on the slide there. The psalmist writes... Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. All light, all earth, earthly light, all created light, eventually burns out. This week I came in Monday or Tuesday and flipped on the light switch, and uh, there was a pop sound, and then there was the smell of burning, and uh, I was slightly concerned. So I went and got Darylin, who's our facilities guy, and, and he said, oh yeah, it's, uh, it's just up there in the banister, I'll, oh, we'll, we'll ballast, we'll get that uh, taken care of. And Mike came and changed it out. But, but there's a point in which that bulb was put in, brand new, and we know at some point that bulb will burn out. That's true in all the lights in here and all the lights in your home. Scientists estimate that We only have about 8 billion years or so of sunlight left. Um, That's their estimates. I guess that means they're going to be finishing Kellogg in the dark. Um, All light on earth fades with time. Stars die. Lights go out. But God's Word is an unfading, unending light. It is light so constant that even people who would never read it and say, this is just a book full of fairy tales, cannot help from quoting from it. Uh, You've probably seen uh, articles like this, and I'll just highlight a few, but there are many uh, phrases and sayings that we use in our language that come straight from the Bible. Rise and shine. It comes from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Fight the good fight comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. The powers that be comes from Romans chapter 13, verse 1 in the King James translation. Uh, Wolves in sheep's clothing, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. And there's a lot of people who use biblical phrases as a part of their conversation, as part of their lives and work and school and they don't even know they're quoting the Bible. It is light so powerful that it cannot be avoided. God's Word is, secondly, truth unending. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said of His own words, verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And he's speaking here in the, about the lesson of the fig tree, and he's saying, you know, 
there's a season. You, you, you know the consistency of the seasons. And you know when this, this, these things happen in the natural world that we're about to enter a new season. When the leaves fall off or when the buds sprout, we know we're entering a new season. We, we can rely on that. And then as a part of that, he says, he says these uh, judgments are going to come place, take place very soon. This generation will not pass away. And then he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Human truth is like sand on the seashore. It is always shifting, always eroding, and never staying in the same place. It is neither firm nor lasting. And so when you depend on human truth and human reason, you're on shifting sand. When you you build your life on God's Word, you are building on bedrock. You're building on something that does not shift, that will remain constant. You can build your life and you can stake your eternal house on it. Uh, As we drive over here on K96 and 254, this, this work that they're doing over here on the highway and they're rebuilding the bridges. It's always fascinating to me that with those bridges, they have to bear such a, a great amount of stress and they have to do all of these calculations to figure what potential weight could be on there, what kinds of winds they might face, the earth shake. So how do they overcome all of those engineering stresses? They don't want the bridge to collapse, so they make sure that when they build a bridge... They drive deep. Go all the way down till you hit bedrock. Anchor there. Whether you're a bridge builder or a life builder, dig deep. Anchor your life in the foundational principles of God's Word. These are the things that do not change. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, The story is of a perfect world that is on the precipice of falling. And the very beginning, verse 1, that ancient serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, note this, did God really say? Just that tiny little bit of doubt was all it took. Did God really say? For 2,000 years, the church has based its teachings off of God's Word. And every once in a while, someone will come with a new revelation. We've seen it in our culture. There are people who say, but the Word says right here, very clearly, that this is wrong. And some brilliant 25-year-old will say, but, 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 but wait, there's research. There's, there's new information that all of these people didn't have for 2,000 years. Did God really say that? No, surely He didn't really say that. That's really not what He meant. God does not say what He means, and He certainly doesn't mean what He says. Be careful. I see new canons slipping into the church all the time. I told you before, I I enjoy reading. I enjoy enlightening my mind on all sorts of subjects. But there is no book that compares with God's Word. 
And when we begin allowing ourselves, you know, you know, the Bible's good, but I'm just going to close that. You know what? Let's have a book that we all can study together and learn some new revelations and new teaching. Be careful with that. Because we're, we're then basing our life and our doctrine on shifting sand. What we want to do is go back to the truth which does not change. All of our problems began with a simple question, did God really say? So you should know what God really says. Because what everyone else says matters very little. There will come a time when you and I will be judged by what God really said. Not when everyone else said, but what God really said. Truth unending. Long after all of us have passed away, and long after this building is gone and left to dust, long after our entire world is burned up and the heavens disappear, God's word will still be true. And it's important that we remember that. It's important that we remember this is not just a book. It is the book which can prepare us for life and for life eternal. God's word is not just true. It is sustenance. It, there is something about these words which sustain the soul unlike anything else. When Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, he was tempted, funny enough, with, with the enemy saying, did God really say? And Jesus, of course, told him what God really said. And in, in quoting scripture to him, there is this verse in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus says something that I want us to think about. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This, this, these words are food for your soul. Soul food, if you will. What are you feeding your soul? You ever think about that? What do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen to? Do you feed your soul anything? I've had to take a break recently from social media. I didn't have anything to do with anyone else. It just more had to do with me. I was not in a good place. And I could just felt like being on social media, I was, I was being more and more distracted from God and from my family. And so... I just put that away because it's not good for my soul. I needed time to, to fill myself again. Yes, even preachers have to do that. To fill myself again with the truth of God's Word. I want to ask you, as you sit here this morning or as you watch online, how often do you get God's Word? How often do you feed on God's Word? Is it just during this time? Is it 30, 35 minutes a week? You will be spiritually malnourished if the only 
word that you get is from the preacher or maybe the, the, the Bible class teacher. But that's that's uh, setting yourself up for very anemic spirituality and a very weak relationship with God. Because it's not, I, I do want you to listen to the sermon and I do want you to pay attention during class. But you got to remember, you're, you're going through my filter. I'm basing it on where kind of I am, and I'm putting my filter, and I'm going through my verses. You could bypass the filter completely and go into God's Word and, and let Him get to know you, and let Him correct you and rebuke you and encourage you and build you. Or you could just sort of live off milk and get about an hour a week. I want to encourage you, if you haven't been in God's Word, and if you're not in God's Word regularly, you should do that. That should be a focus. You'll be a better person. You'll be a better spouse. You'll be a better parent. You will be a better person all the way around if God's Word is in you. But more than that, it's not just about good living. You'll find salvation for your soul. That you cannot get to God by yourself. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good. And the Bible as good as it is, is not all about you. It's about redeeming you from your sin through the only one who could redeem you, Jesus the Christ. But when you don't read this book, you don't get to know what God's will is, and you don't get to see about Jesus and hear what Jesus taught and ask yourself if I'm going to live my life on Jesus' terms. So I want to encourage you to to feed on God's Word day and night. And, and this does not have to be like jump, go from zero to studying 16 hours a day. But if you're doing nothing, commit to reading 15 minutes a day. That's better than nothing. If you're doing 15 minutes a day, say, I want to do for 30. Your elders have commanded you to read God's Word. Oh, I know you thought that was an option, and I know that you know that they're not going to be checking on you, at least not until Brian Middleton gets the technology figured out. But, but it is their will as your shepherds that you be in God's Word every day because they know its power. Go to Psalm chapter 1, one of my favorites, and easy because it's the very first one, and it's very short. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's a beautiful picture and a beautiful psalm. But I want you to think about what the blessed man does that's different from all the others. What does he do? Verse 2. His delight 
It's not even that he reads God's word out of obligation or because he has to or because someone told him to. He delights in it. And on his law, he meditates day and night. I am not a barbecue aficionado or guru, but I was recently gifted a Traeger. And the Traeger is wonderful because it pretty much does all the work for you. But I've learned in smoking meat that one of the very simplest things you can do for good barbecue is to take it slow. Keep the heat low. Let it go all day. And and you'll get some of the tenderest, juiciest, most succulent meat of any kind just by virtue of low and slow. Maybe if you'd practice that. Maybe just start with Psalm 1 and just just meditate on that. Just marinate on that. Just let your brain soak in the juices of Psalm 1 this week. And think about the blessed man's life and ask yourself if your life will be like his. May we not forget that the, the word is sustenance unparalleled and may we feed our souls on it Every day. And we may, may we meditate on it day and night. And finally, God's word has power unimaginable. The scripture that is well known, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You see, God's word can do what no human word can ever do. It can pierce. Having preached five years now, I can tell you there are times when I think, oh, I have a creative way to tell the truth of this book. And sometimes I don't have a creative way to to tell it, so I just tell you it. And time and again, God has taught me and humbled me with the lesson that my word is more powerful than Toby's word. And there so many times people just respond and respond and respond to a very simple Bible-based sermon. No creativity, no pizzazz, just simple Bible-centered preaching. Is that because of me? Oh, I get the credit. Go up, oh, that was really good. But it's not me at all. And if you tell me that, I'll say, God is good. Because He is. Because I have the privilege and the honor each week to share with you and to share with you what's in this book. And I get to basically say, that's true. That's true. That's true. Read it. Live it. Yield your lives to it. It's, that's true. Several years ago, I had a young couple that was, I actually didn't know them very well, and I was preaching a sermon on marriage, and I simply quoted about the marriage bed should be kept pure, and how it was not God's will that couples live together, that that's sin, and the world accepts that as okay, but God never changed. And so this couple who was living together, and see, again, I wasn't preaching this to them, I was I was preaching the Word, and the Word was doing the work. 
And they came up afterward and they said, we need to repent. We need to change. We know that what we're doing is not right. Is that because of my brilliance and my creativity? No. It was from God's word, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So don't just read the Bible. Let the Bible read you. A lot of people come to the Bible with conditions and and biases and prejudices, and they want to mold the Bible to fit that. No, do it the other way around. And wherever your opinion disagrees with God's word, your job is to change your opinion as quickly as possible. A word from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 55. Um, This part of this verse is actually inscribed on my wall in my office. And I'm reminded of it often. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your Your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Verse 10. As the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The beginning of this book, it's God's word that creates life. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God's word still has that kind of power, still has the power to change people like nothing else can. And so may we live on that truth, and may we let it sustain us, and may we realize its power. Paul wrote to Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed, is God-breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly, and may be competent, equipped for every good work. You see, it's not just knowing God's ways, it's living God's ways. But God's word can change our ways, and it can change our eternity. God's word, a book unlike any other. It is light, it is truth, it is sustenance, and it is powerful. Unlike any book ever written. And all that being true... It's secondary to the reason you should read God's Word. And it was the lesson that I learned the hard way. You need to read the Word that you might know the author. See, I missed the opportunity when Virgil Vining came into my office to get to know him and to connect with him and to learn about someone he wanted to share with me. And when we leave our Bible on the table, or we leave it on the shelf out in the foyer, 
I counted 55 Bibles on the shelf in the foyer. We miss an opportunity to connect with the author. We, we, we miss the opportunity to connect with our Creator. God gave you His Word that you might know Him and that you might know His Son. And if you read the entire Word and you just get the trivialities or you just check off a box or you just say, well, I read the book of Ezra, but you learn nothing about Jesus, then you've missed the point of the Word. The Bible is not about you or I. It's about Jesus. Every, every jot, every tittle, every word is about Him and that He is the only way to God. And so this morning, if you don't know Him, we'd be happy to introduce you to Him. Uh, someone once said the word Bible, B-I-B-L-E, stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. Now, that's cute, but that's not really what Bible means. But if that helps you to remember it, don't miss the message from God that He loves you and that in spite of your sin, because of your sin, rather, He sent His Son to die for you and pay the price for that sin that you might know Him in eternity. If you need to know Christ, if you need to put on Christ, there's no other better time to get to know the author and to know His Son than right now. If you have that need to begin walking with Christ, we'll show you what the Word says about how to do that. And if you have any other spiritual need, you can see our shepherds at the back, and they'll tend to it as best they can. Uh, Let's come now if there's a need. Together we stand and sing.